This is, um, for us, kind of the beginning of our year. I think it has something to do with the fact that as a nonprofit, our fiscal year begins in the fall, so we've made a habit of every fall making it a time to stop, regroup, kind of circle the wagons is the expression I often hear, and talk about why we're here. Um, you know, from late 1917, I read this week, thank you very much, Cam, I appreciate that. From late 1917 until June 1919, what was a then unknown author named Franz Kafka kept several journals that he never intended to be published. And in them, he wrestled, as we all do, with something called the human condition. His publisher would later title some of those excerpts after they had been published, uh, Reflections on Sin, Suffering, Hope, and the True Way. And the appropriateness of such a title is evident from even a cursory scan of the text if you want to Google them and start reading. Here's one such noteworthy excerpt from Kafka's journal. One of the first signs of the beginning of understanding is the wish to die. This life appears unbearable, another unattainable. One is no longer ashamed of wanting to die. One asks to be moved from the old cell, which one hates, to a new one, which one will only in time come to hate. In this, there is also a residue of belief that during that move, the master will chance to come along the corridor, look at the prisoner and say, this man is not to be locked up again. He is to come with me. Now, to the presently well-adjusted, I'm sure you guys are much more healthy than Kafka was, such, you know, dire-sounding prose reads as oblique or unfathomable. You think, oh, man, that guy was really unhappy or he was unwell. He's writing about desire to die. And yet all of us, I think, are today yet connected to that very same deep-seated internal ache that likely guided Kafka's pen back then. We are wandering what often seems like a cold, indifferent planet, broken, it's been out of shape, it's colliding with others in their own peculiar brokenness along the way. That's life. Comedian and outspoken atheist Ricky Gervais put it this way in one of his recent stand-up routines. We have the same life cycle as any other animal, which is our parents mate, we're born, we grow, we mate, our parents die, all our friends die, and then we die. And, you know, maybe you're not one for meditating on your own mortality or, or the question of meaning all the time. Perhaps you're not one for existential dread and all that. But you do, consciously or subconsciously, wonder the point of all this. You do this actively, meaning you work, you form relationships, you mess those relationships up, you repair them, you make families, you eat and drink and celebrate, you mourn losses, you long for certain things and you get some of them, you regret some of them and you celebrate others. And of course, most of us can't help but notice along that journey the world around us, a place that seems more than a little disheveled at times. When I have conversations with men and women, old and young, across all sorts of different backgrounds and experiences, there seems to be a largely shared apprehension about life in the modern world, which is the world has gone freaking crazy. And this recent season of life, uh, in particular in America, in particular beginning with the 2016 chaotic election season and on into the here and now, has acted as something of a pressure, cook pressure cooker where all sorts of satanic ideals built into the very foundation of the United States have boiled to the surface and then mutated and gone strutting about in broad daylight. So you have things like racism and sexism and xenophobia, uh, white supremacy marches and KKK rallies and the rise of the alt-right and police brutality and megalomania and the beating and gunning down of unarmed black men and women, often without justice or recourse. You have 
what seems like a never-ending onslaught of sexual harassment and assault uh, incidents that have apparently plagued entire institutions and businesses and geographic regions like a curse, and they've been exposed one after the other, dozens and dozens and dozens of them piling up in this hideous dog pile. You have refugee families that are being deported and children separated from their parents, and in all of this, People are lining up to draw their lines in the sand and make every single thing a different sort of socio-political opinion and choose sides, differentiate between right and left, conservative, liberal, right or wrong, black and white. And the corruption of the right has made way for the new fundamentalism of the left, which is either you agree with our ideologies, all of them and with specificity, or you are an idiot, a bigot. Uh, on the wrong side of history. And these people must be silenced and shunned and publicly shamed and destroyed. We must root out and eradicate anything and everything that does not bow down to the new group think, which means that you have to censor all offensive art and silence every offending party and remove anything and everything that might upset. You have to create safe spaces and uphold the new status quo. And all of this creating such a complicated tangle that it begins to strangle itself and leave people wondering who has earned which titles and who has been more victimized, who is allowed in which group and on what basis and who is radical enough and who is and is not privileged and on what base. Is it race or is it upbringing? Is it socioeconomic status? Is it gender or sexuality or a combination of all those factors? But divisive socio-political worldview is only one element of the chaos in the world as we know it. In 2017, the U.S. alone saw a total of 346 mass shootings. Uh, that's almost one for every day. According to data from the Gun Violence Archive, a total of 261 mass shooting incidents have occurred as of September 20th in 2018. And listen to this. This is a true story. I, as I was working on this teaching throughout the week, I checked that data on Wednesday across a number of sources, and then I rechecked it on Thursday, and the number had gone up by three in a day. And when I tell people something like that, I was kind of like, oh man, I, this, you'll never believe what I was reading today. They sometimes balk or they rebut and they say things like, yeah, but you know, how many people died? Or they'll say, were they really technically mass shootings? And I'm like, listen to the insanity in this. We're now mincing technicalities on death tolls of events in which uh, over and over and over and again, a lone gunman or woman opens fire on a crowd of people and being like, does it count? Does it not count? And we say things like, man, the world has gone crazy. Things keep getting worse. Everything seems like it's falling apart. But many cultural analysts and historians and anthropologists would actually beg to differ. Um, known history is replete with the insanity of evil and chaos as far back as history goes. You have things like child sacrifice among Babylonians and Aztecs. You have pederasty, meaning a grown man and a boy in a sexual relationship as a social norm in ancient Greece, in civilized ancient Greece. You have Nero who would burn Christians to light his gardens at night. You have the burning of Rome during Nero's reign, the bubonic plague during the Dark Ages, the French Revolution, the Spanish Inquisition, two world wars, by the way, nuclear war, the Holocaust, Adolf Hitler apparently was responsible for the deaths of some 17 million people, Stalin, 23 million people, Mao, 78 million people. You have genocide in Rwanda, September 11. You have the shock and awe in Afghanistan and civil war in Syria still going today, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. The point is that at various intervals in world history, in various parts of civilized humanity, Everyone thought the world had gone particularly mad. And the truth is that the world has always been mad. And so we, the inhabitants of the world, are left to wonder, where do I fit 
in all of this? What's the point of all of this? Who am I? Why am I here? What are we doing? And not just here as in the universe, I mean, but here as in Encompass Church in Vancouver on a Sunday evening in September. What's the point? What are we doing? What is the truth? What does it mean to be alive? Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, check the table of contents. The New Testament goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Like I was saying earlier, every year in the fall, we set some time aside to sort of regroup because there are things that we often say here at Van City, rhythms in which we operate, forms to our particular approach to church, and all that's good, I hope, we're doing the best we can, but the idea is that familiarity can, if we let it, drain the meaning from words and from rhythms and from practices, which is why we take a few Sundays every fall to talk about why we're doing this, which is the vision of our church, as it were, our hopes and our goals for the year ahead and for our lives as we follow Jesus of Nazareth together. But before we get into the nuts and bolts, let's read a story about Jesus. Now, the setup for this story, the context, is that you have a crowd gathered around Jesus in the city of Capernaum. It's kind of late into his ministry, into him being out and about in the world doing crazy things. And these people come around Jesus, and they are armed, uh, like Kafka, like you and I, with questions about what it means to be human and what the point to all of this is. So look down at the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John chapter 6, and let's read beginning with verse 28. It says, Then they, the crowds, asked him, Jesus, What must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, remember, in Jesus' worldview, the word believe doesn't just mean intellectual belief, as in, I believe in my mind that Jesus is real. It means to entrust the entirety of one's heart and soul and mind and outward living to Jesus, the one whom God has sent. And then in the story, it goes on for quite a spell. You can read it on your own time. Jesus begins to actually provoke the crowd with all sorts of dark, violent symbolism about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And people are understandably not into it. They don't like it at all. And, but what I want you guys to see for tonight is what happens at the end of the story. After all that, skip all the way down to verse 66. So after Jesus has alienated the crowd, said all kinds of crazy stuff, kind of baited and provoked them a little bit, it says, verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12, meaning his closest friends, his in circle of disciples. And Simon Peter, one of Jesus' apprentices, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So if, if you read this story, you see a familiar motif. Jesus offers a very specific, even exclusive answer to the question of, what the heck are we doing here? How do we make sense of it? And how do we do it well? But the reaction to Jesus' answer is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Many reject it. They don't like it. Many of the people who were following walk away. Um, people that had signed up re revoke their status as disciples. And then in the story, Peter, one of Jesus' most wonderfully flawed disciples, sees turning his back on Jesus as kind of like an option without hope. Meaning he's like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess we could go somewhere else, but where? <laughs> 
Only Jesus, Peter says, has the truth, and he's come to believe that. Now, all of us, like these characters in the story, are disciples of something, meaning we all follow someone or something. This is not a Christian or even a religious concept at all. It's actually a human concept, meaning you might follow Jesus, but someone else, you might follow your parents and their teaching and their worldview, or maybe you follow your friends, or maybe you follow your professors or your upbringing or your heritage or your culture, whatever it might be. The question is not if you follow someone or something, you do, it's who or what are you following. And given the fact that each of us are on our separate yet interconnected journeys through life in the universe, we are all en route to somewhere. We are heading toward a destination. So in order to make that trip a good one, you need a vision for that destination. You need to have a plan for where you're going, an outlook on life. And then, to take the metaphor further, you need a map to get there. If you have a good vision, and if your map of how to get there is even somewhat reliable, then there's hope. Things will be difficult, for sure, but there's hope. You have a plan, you have something to which you're headed. Now, if your vision is warped, if your map is inaccurate, then you may not care for the destination when you arrive, or you may not care for the person that you are becoming along the way. This is why Jesus said that the greatest secret of the human condition is to believe in the one God sent, meaning Jesus. Believe in him, meaning derive your vision of life it's all-encompassing entirety from Jesus and only from Jesus. Follow Jesus and his way. The life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth are the map. The Spirit of God is your active guide every step of the way on that journey. And the community of Jesus' followers, your brothers and sisters in the faith, are your companions on the road. You will not walk it by yourself. This is what it means to be a disciple, which is, I know, an archaic-sounding word for many of us. In Greek, the word is mathetes, and it can also be translated as apprentice, which is why we believe that one can organize the entire dynamic, complex paradigm of being an apprentice of Jesus into three lifelong goals, which are to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to eventually do the things that Jesus did. And that triad begins with a very simple notion, to be with Jesus. The concept of discipleship, I don't know if you, guys, if you guys know this, did not actually begin with Jesus. He didn't make it up. Jesus wasn't the first rabbi to gather disciples or apprentices. He wasn't the last. In fact, in the ancient Jewish education system, discipleship was kind of the highest of student aspirations. It was kind of like our PhD program or, you know, postdoctoral fellowship. And if you were an apprentice of a first century rabbi, the first and most fundamental premise of this concept was very simple, and that was to go everywhere your rabbi rabbi goes at all times. Sleep where your rabbi sleeps, wake up when he wakes up, go where he goes. The student would spend every waking hour in the presence of the master. And we actually see this still depicted, albeit romantically, in training sequences of fiction. I talk about these all the time, but you have, you know, like Luke moves in with Yoda on Dagobah, even though he has to bend down to get into his house. Adonis Creed moves in with Rocky Balboa in Philadelphia. The bride travels into the wilderness and moves in with abusive kung fu master Paime. And listen, the fundamental precept of the discipleship paradigm is the same for modern apprentices of Jesus as it was for those in first century Palestine, which is be with Jesus. The same continues to apply to us every waking moment, all the time, which of course begs a very obvious question, how? 
We no longer have access to Jesus' physical presence, if you didn't notice. Um, But the weird thing is that Jesus actually said this would be better for us as disciples of Jesus. And then we ask again, well, why? That seems to not compute. But it's actually pretty simple. The earliest disciples of Jesus had to share their access to Jesus with other people all the times. And then there was time when Jesus wanted to be alone. Now all of us who follow Jesus have unlimited ongoing access to Jesus by his Spirit, which is the Spirit, the Scriptures say, live within us. Now, the Spirit is, according to the Scriptures, always with us, but we are not always with Him, right? We are busy, we are preoccupied, we are unfocused, we are hurried, or we are aimless, or we are lazy, whatever it might be, all in that spectrum. So for us, to be with Jesus means the constant, ongoing pursuit of opening our minds to God, to God's thoughts, our imaginations to the presence of God, that even our bodies might be open to be directed where he would have us go. And Jesus actually talked about this concept at length. He compared himself to a vine, and he compared his disciples to the branches that grow out of the vine. And as long as we maintain that sort of connectedness, what Jesus called abiding in the vine, then we will, in his words, bear fruit, be productive, enjoy the life that God intended us to have. But when we break that connectedness, or when we operate outside of that connectedness, Jesus said, and I quote, we can do nothing. Later, uh, one master apprentice of Jesus called Paul went on to call this very thing, quite appropriately, prayer without ceasing. After that, St. Teresa and uh, Thomas Merton called it contemplation. Brother Lawrence called it the practice of the presence of God. A.W. Tozer called it constant conscious communion. And the interesting thing is that it's not being in a closet with your eyes closed 24-7, concentrating, you know, in a lotus position or something. It's actually actually a natural state that develops the more that we train ourselves to direct and redirect the heart, the mind, and the soul to God until that becomes our natural, innate disposition. Um, missionary and Christian mystic Frank Labach, known for actually his groundbreaking work on literacy, wrote about this practice at length, saying this. Get ready for a really big one here, but stick with me. It's good. Perhaps a man who has been an ordained minister since 1914 ought to be ashamed to confess that he never before felt the joy of complete, hourly, minute by minute. Now, what shall I call it? More than surrender. I had that before. More than listening to God. I tried that before. I cannot find the word that will mean to you or to me what I am now experiencing. It is a will act. I compel my mind to open straight out toward God. I wait and listen with determined sensitiveness. I fix my attention there. And sometimes it requires a long time, early in the morning, to attain that mental state. I determine not to get out of bed until that mindset, that concentration upon God, is settled. It also requires determination to keep it there. For I feel as though the words and thoughts of others near me were constantly exerting a drag backward or sidewise, his word, not mine. (laughs) But for the most part, recently, I have not lost sight of this purpose for long and have soon come back to it. After a while, he wrote, perhaps it will become a habit and the sense of effort will grow less. Now, much later in his journey, he wrote this down. This concentration upon God is strenuous, but everything else has ceased to be so. 
I think more clearly. I forget less frequently. Things which I did with a strain before, I now do easily and with no effort whatever. I worry about nothing and I lose no sleep. I walk on air a good part of the time. Even the mirror reveals a new light in my eyes and face. I no longer feel in a hurry about anything. Each minute I meet calmly. Nothing can go wrong excepting one thing. That is that God may slip from my mind if I do not keep on my guard. If he is there, the universe is with me. My task is simple and clear. So you see that even someone that we would think of as having gained a great deal of maturity in this discipline, he did not become a monk or a hermit. He did not retreat to a closet. He just went about his life. He went about his life connected to God with Jesus, as it were. Tozer explained it a similar way, saying this, a habit of soul is forming, which will become after a while a sort of spiritual reflex, requiring no more conscious effort on our part. And in a quote that I've actually read many times, Dallas Willard also puts it beautifully when he says this, soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. And actually, we know this now from science, a concept called neuroplasticity actually confirms what seems to be a really lofty goal, meaning you can indeed train your mind to develop new dispositions and new tendencies with time and with practice, doing exactly the simple thing that these folks were describing, where you just try it and try it and try it again and see how it works. The New Testament also teaches the same exact premise, but they call it the renewal of the mind. And this is the foundational first goal of discipleship, out of which grows goal number two, to become like Jesus. Now, if you were an apprentice of a rabbi in the first century, there was more to being by your rabbi's side 24-7 than keeping him company, though I'm sure that was nice. Um, the idea was for the apprentice to become like their master because of all the time they spent together. We call this spiritual formation, and it works in a threefold progression. You believe in Jesus, meaning you concentrate the entirety of your life on Jesus, and then you become like him, and then eventually you behave like him, meaning the things that you believe shape the person you become, which determines your actions in the world. And this is inevitable. There are things that you believe right now that are changing you over time, some of them for better and some of them presumably for worse. And all of us want to modify behavior. Actually, no one, even if they claim otherwise, feels entirely satisfied with all of their behavior and thinking be it health and nutrition is an easy one I could think of, career aspirations, life disciplines, hobbies, relationships. We all want to and attempt ways of modifying the way that we behave. But behavior modification often begins with the destination, meaning you attempt to change habits without treating the personhood that generates the habits. It's a bit like the way so much research seems to indicate that taking uh, anti-anxiety or anti-depression medication without coupling it with counseling and therapy is a bit like treating symptoms without treating the cause of the symptoms. Jesus wants to redesign your personhood right down to the very core, thus your thought life, your emotions, your desires, your heart. Jesus wants to renew all of those things, and in doing so, he wants you to become like him, the kind of person who loves their enemies, the kind of person who leaves lust behind, the kind of person who is no longer anxious about anything. 
Someone who does not live as an imposter. Someone who does not compare themselves to other people. Someone who does not criticize other people to build themselves up. Um, Richard Rohr actually argued that it was foolish to attempt to change one's circumstances without changing one's character. So the idea is that you will have to change. Your person will have to change. But actually, it's interesting because not all of you will change. There is a uniqueness to you. There's a way that God designed you over and against other people that makes you different, that makes you unique and special, and you will never be able to truly realize the potential of that unique uniqueness without the renewing power of Jesus. M. Scott Peck says it this way, if ever one has the good fortune to meet a living saint, one will have them met someone, one will have then met someone absolutely unique. Though their visions may be remarkably similar, the personhood of saints is remarkably different. This is because they have become utterly themselves. God creates each soul differently so that when all the mud is finally cleaned away, his light will shine through it in a beautiful, colorful, totally new pattern. Become like Jesus and in doing so, more like your true self. And finally, the third goal of any apprentice is to do what Jesus did. Perhaps a better way of understanding this goal is by asking the question, what would Jesus do if he were me? Or, you know, on a bracelet, W-W-J-G-I-H-W-M, question mark. Feel free to go for that, uh, the patent and all that. Yeah, add, add to it, see if you can make a wrap all around. Um, and there's obvious reasons that we make such a distinction. You know, I've said this before. Jesus was a Jewish man from the ancient Near East. Most of us, I assume, are probably not Jewish. Half of us aren't men. None of us are from the ancient Near East. So you won't become like Jesus in every single way. You will be like Jesus if Jesus were a student in Vancouver or an engineer in Camas, or if Jesus was a mom with toddlers, crazy toddlers running around, or if Jesus was a child therapist, or a musician, or a designer, or an employee of the city, if Jesus was a college student, if Jesus was an accountant, you are learning to never separate spiritual life from life in general. All of it, all you think and say and do is the life of a disciple. And you must learn to operate out of your identity as a disciple in all things. So that's the idea. Be with Jesus so that you can become like Jesus and eventually you will become the kind of person who can do the things that Jesus did. At Van City, we constantly call this practicing the way of Jesus and we do it together, never alone. This is more than a system of ethics. It's more than a set of beliefs. It is a beautifully all-encompassing way of life, a new way to be a human being. And this is why we go on about Jesus constantly. This is why I personally read from the Gospels every single day, why we practice spiritual disciplines taken from the life and practices of Jesus himself. Because if you want to experience the life that Jesus offers, you must adopt the lifestyle Jesus practiced. And notice, when you read the biographies of Jesus, the four Gospels, Jesus doesn't command you, the reader, to read your Bible every single morning. He doesn't command you to go be alone and pray often. He doesn't command you to rest well and work well. He doesn't command you to live in community. But, listen, Jesus just does all those things. And then he invites his disciples, then and now, come, follow me, emulate me. Pattern your way of life around me and the things that I do. 
Why? To what end? All of these practices, these spiritual disciplines, the practices of Jesus, they are a means to an end. They are not the end themselves. The end is God, to open our hearts and minds to God, to know who he is and what he wants and why, to encounter and understand and be shaped by the beautiful, loving truth of God in all things. And yes, the practices are called spiritual disciplines, meaning they require commitment, they require practice, they require follow-through again and again and again. But so do all meaningful relationships. Ask anyone who's been married for more than a few days. Love costs. It requires work. It requires self-sacrifice and disciplined commitment and even certain disciplined practices to truly know and love someone and to be known and loved by someone in return. And there are times, just like in any human relationship, as with God, when it will feel more like little more than duty, like an obligation, or when it feels like that obligation returns void. But all of it, together and over time, is working to the same end, and that end is to know and be with and be changed by God. When you practice the way of Jesus, when you work to be with him, and you are in turn shaped to be like him, and then you can do the sorts of things that he did. And you do this by showing up. You do this by giving it a shot, practicing, trial and error. When you read about these seemingly heroes of the faith who have come so far in their maturity of practicing the presence of God, it's easy to say like, man, I, I don't know if I thought about God at all today, let alone held him in my mind the entire time. But these people all began from nothing and went to something. You show up and you try and you fail sometimes and you get back up and you try again. In other words, this is not about perfectionism. It's not about rule keeping or idealism. It's about something much simpler, more profound and more beautiful and that is faithfulness. In the chaotic whirlwind of a world that has always been crazy, the true disciple rebels against evil by refusing to give up and by showing up. When others walk away, we, you know, famous figures and role models and close friends and family members, when Jesus turns to us in the crowd and says, do you want to leave too? We say again and again and again, where would we go? You're the only one who has the truth. So we keep showing up faithfully in a culture that's marked by flakiness and entitlement, a sort of fast food, Netflix, Amazon Prime approach to life, and even church, sadly. We choose the longer, more narrow, more difficult road of spiritual formation because the easier, other, more comfortable road doesn't actually lead to anything but death. And in a moment of American culture marked by the romanticizing of faithlessness, I can imagine nothing more rebellious than fidelity. Nothing more against the status quo than commitment. Nothing more countercultural than discipline and self-sacrifice. And this is not a trick. This is not a self-help gimmick. It is a difficult, painful, but beautiful and life-giving way to be a human being. My dream, personally, for this little community, for you and I, would be that in all our messy complicatedness, we somehow learn to experience the life of Jesus together. That we would somehow learn more and more over time 
how to teach our minds to return to him more often, that we would slow down, that we would hear a little clearer all the time, the more we listen, the more we practice, that we would begin to invite Jesus by his spirit into our routines, into our work, into our hobbies, into our conversations, that we would find ourselves along the road of life more like Jesus as time and faithfulness continue, meaning we become less angry, we become less sarcastic and insincere, we become less anxious as time goes on, or less carnal, or less flaky, or less greedy, or less selfish and fearful. In my case, I know that I would love to be someone who is filled with more joy than I am with despair, filled with far more redeemed love of myself in the God, true Jesus sense, than self-hate. And eventually, I want those shadowy things to erode and to vanish altogether so that pride will double over and wilt and rot and leave behind humility instead. And that concern, selfish concern for us will be transformed into compassion for others. And the fear and unwillingness to examine oneself becomes the calm, confident willingness to find a shadow in you at any given time and to confidently put it to death again and again and again. And finally, we find ourselves in natural action. We become the type of people who can only but offer hospitality to other people, who can only but share the gospel without panic or pain or apprehension, that we would learn to be the type of people who pray for others as a natural disposition, who would learn to heal the sick and prophesy for our communities and for one another, for our neighbors and neighborhoods. Because in all of it, we are doing this together. There is no faithfulness in isolation. And that togetherness is a raw, unglamorous, but remarkably profound thing. Deeper than affinity groups and friendliness, the community of faith is willing to serve and sacrifice for one another at great personal expense. Meaning we learn to confront one another's sin in loving compassion out of a deep-seated concern and love for one another, to fight for the formation and redemption of one another again and again and again along the blistering road of life. And in that, we will fall and we will help one another up and we will continue to walk in faithfulness when the road is bright and beautiful, and sometimes it will be, and when the road becomes so dark you can scarcely see your hand in front of your trembling face. We will walk in faithfulness, practicing the way of Jesus, together. In the next 12 months of our church, we actually have uh, practices that we're mapping out and writing as we speak to walk us along that journey. The next is actually a practice called fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is something that's really important to me uh, personally and something for that we've kind of been planting seeds for years now. Actually, I can say that. We've been in church for a few years. Um, we'll talk about the culture around us. We'll talk about something that the New Testament calls our flesh, which is never a glamorous thing to talk about, especially in the here and now. And yes, we will at length discuss the devil. So at the beginning of 2019, we'll actually move into a new practice after that one that's about Sabbath. It's about learning to rest well, especially in the overpaced, busy, frenetic life of the modern world, fight against the stressed out over busyness of life in the here and now. Then in the spring, we'll talk about how you determine your season of life, where you're at and what's ahead, and find out how to walk as an apprentice of Jesus in that season in particular to the best of your abilities. And then in the summer, 
we may just arrive at preaching the gospel. Get excited for that one. Now, oh, wow. Was that Cam? Oh, dang. Never mind. He'll help you. Have coffee with him. Um, and, and listen, I say all that, even the joke about preaching the gospel, because I know that some of those, it's like, oh, learn to rest better. That sounds kind of nice. The devil, that's weird. I'll listen. And then, you know, it's preaching the gospel. It's like, oh, I'll be on vacation, you know, or whatever it might be. <laughs> um, but, and I'm, I'm right there with you guys. I don't approach any of these. Like, a lot of these are square one for me. A few of them are things that are familiar to me, and I'm learning every step of the way right there with you guys. And I want to be a part of this with you guys. Meaning, I want us to show up and give it a shot. Something we say at the end of every little series we do for the practices is like, just try it. Just show up and give it a shot. And I remember a while back, I, was, I mentioned how I had read this really fascinating moniker that's used to close AA meetings, apparently. Um, and the line is, keep coming back, it works. And there's something beautiful there, I think, about church and about community and about spiritual formation and spiritual discipline. Meaning that if you're here, really here, I mean, then you're not here for an event. Maybe even not like in the subconscious sense. You don't know it yet, but you're not just here to hang out. You're not here just for music or some guy or girl talking at you for a half hour or to hang out with your friends and drink cider. All that's great. But you're actually here for something far more profound and cosmic and beautiful and old, but also costly and dangerous and wild. And just before I came here this evening, I was reading from a novel and I came across this fascinating passage that connected that line from AA. And to end tonight, I just want to read this to you guys. It said, Recovery and support groups are the new churches. Traditional places of worship have been reduced to crass theaters where people go to signal their status and virtues. A true church has to serve as a place where people go in safety to risk confessing their worst selves not to boast and display their pride. Those who attend recovery groups, they arrive defeated. They tell their story of failure, their sins and shortcomings, to admit their culpability, and in doing so, they receive a communion with their flawed peers. Yes, the world, even with its glimpses of the inbreaking kingdom, can be a world of insanity. You and I, our lives are caught in that tension, meaning many of us have tasted the beauty of God's kingdom. We've seen it in the here and now, and we've also gone without it. And so we keep coming back because we've seen the truth, and here we are, against all odds, faithfully practicing the way of Jesus together so that when he turns and asks and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? We say, where would we go? You are the only one who has the truth. With that in mind, let's pray before we worship again together.